Well, good morning, Go Church. I hope you've been enjoying this wonderful weather we have been having right at the end of February. I mean, what in the world? We got the sun up high in the sky, no clouds, blue skies. It has been wonderful, and you got to milk it for all it's worth because, you know, it's already back to eh, today. <laughs> so, yeah, get out there and enjoy it. Hope you did. Um, but uh, I want to start off today with a, with a brief and exciting update about what God is doing with the Go Church East County. And if you're new here, you probably don't really know what I mean by that. So I just want to take a second to explain. And uh, for those of you who are not new, new here, um, I hope that this reminds you of the importance of church planning in some way. But around five years ago, this church that we're meeting in right now did not exist um, at all. And, and it's just a crazy thought to think about, like just we weren't even here. I guess it was more like five and a half years ago now, or getting close to that. Um, but, but it had to be started. It had to be started by somebody who was called by God to, to see a new congregation form in Richfield and someone who decided to do the work necessary to, to have that happen. And uh, five, five and a half years ago, roughly, that was my dad. But fast forward to now, our church just recently sent him out and he moved to East County, Portland metro area to plant a new Go Church there to do this again over there to, to replicate and to multiply. And currently he's in the, the core group phase of the church plant. And um, what that is, is basically um, he's gathered a group of committed Christians who are already know the Lord and they're meeting on a regular basis and have been for prayer for Bible study, for worship, and they're strengthening um, together to prepare for something called Launch Day. And Launch Day is when the church basically goes public, more or less, and they, they have their first service out in the community. And so everything they're doing before that day is preparing, getting out in the community, connecting uh, people with the church, getting the name around so that, you know, on that very first day, they can have a healthy congregation show up. And uh, that works pretty well. That's, that's what we did. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where they're at in, in their journey right now is they are meeting with that, with that smaller team, that core team. Um, and things have been going really well. My dad has been on a sabbatical uh, since leaving you know, this church and getting prepared to start the new church. Um, and thankfully, leaders have stepped up in the core team and, and led that without him even being there. But to get to the kind of exciting update part, he just re returned. He's back in the, back in the saddle. Um, and they just met last week for an amazing night of communion and worship. And of the 35 people committed to starting this brand new church, 34, 34 people showed up. And, you know, I, that's, attendance doesn't say everything, right? It doesn't say, you know, it could be, they could be a thousand people there and they could be not saying the truth. But uh, so, so you've got to know that it's also, the truth is also being proclaimed. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up now and I'm going to let you watch the video just, to, just so you can see what's going on there. Just a short little clip of uh, that night with the uh, Go Church East County core team.
Yeah, so that's what they're doing, kind of like a little mini church, getting ready to start, start a big one, more or less. And, and that's, that's why we're passionate about starting churches, um, because people in that church, um, in that core team, and people that are going to be in that church, they're, they're not going to come to us. It's too far away. Um, and, and really, it's, it's interesting how many people I feel like don't quite get this, but the population of the Northwest is so far beyond the number of churches that we have that it's just flat out astronomical. Do you realize that if, like, we filled every single church in this region, like, with, for multiple services, we still wouldn't even come close to touching our population? Wouldn't even come close. Um, it's, it's just insane. We need to plant more churches. Anyway, I, I could keep going, but I better not plant, uh, uh, preach a sermon before I preach a sermon. I've heard that's not a good thing to do as a preacher. <laughs> but uh, before, I, before I move on, I'll just, I just want to say this. If you're sitting there in your seat and you're thinking, man, that, that looks kind of cool. Maybe, maybe God wants me to be a part of that. Maybe God wants me to join a core team or, or plant someday. Um, please do not ignore that. Please do not ignore that. That might be God speaking. Um, and, and the reality is that the reason we don't have more church plants is because we don't have enough church planters people who are willing to surrender to that call. Um, so don't ignore that, and if you feel that way in any way, come talk to me after the service. Come talk to any of our pastors. We would love to, to talk about that more. But now that I've gotten that out, I'm looking forward to concluding our series on love today in 1 Corinthians 13 with part 3. As a reminder, we began the series with the necessity of love in verses 1 through 3. Then we spent two weeks on the definition of love in verses 4 through 6. And now we are on the superiority of love in verses 7 through 13. So without further ado, let's get into our text this morning. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 7. I'm going to stop at verse 13 today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to be starting at verse 7. Here we go. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. So let's start with what's obvious. I don't think anyone could come away from that passage with a lower view of love. That, that takes some, I don't know, twisting around of the words there. Frankly, there's a lot in those seven verses, but one common theme throughout all of them is this very simple but compelling idea that nothing outranks love. Not prophecy, not tongues, not knowledge, not even faith or hope. So, there's a question we need to ask. Why is love superior? Why is love better than all those things? Our text today gives us three reasons. Number one, because love is enduring. Number two, because love is eternal. And number three, because love is essential. And before we work through these points today, I want to clarify two things. 
First, please understand that one single point by itself isn't like a compelling argument to prove the case that nothing outranks love. It all has to be combined together to, to say that. All three points are meant to kind of stack on each other to make that case, nothing outranks love. If you take one of them by themselves, it's not as good. So, Second, I want to let you know that we will be diving into application today, but not until the very end. Because once again, the points build on each other. So if you have a moment today when you're, and you're hearing the sermon, you're like, okay, I'm understanding, but what does this mean for my life? What am I going to do with this? Um, that moment is going to come. It's just coming at the end. So hang in there. But with that understanding, the first reason that nothing outranks love is that love is enduring. We read in verse 7 that love bears all things, that it endures all things. So let's start by defining endurance. To put it simply, whether it's about a marathon or our walk with Christ, endurance means the same thing, making it to the end. Now, when it comes to Scripture, there are two things that believers are called to endure. Number one, we are called to endure persecution. And number two, we are called to endure doing good and abstaining from sin. So first, let me give you um, some examples of why endurance is profoundly important in those two areas of Scripture, and then we'll focus in on what that has to do with the superiority of love. So starting with endurance in Scripture, Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, both of those passages refer to endurance in regard to abstaining from sin, but Jesus highlighted the importance of endurance and persecution when he spoke to the disciples about end times in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13. So let's go ahead and read what he said, starting in verse 9 of chapter 24. It should be on screen for you. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So right here in the words of Jesus, we can see two truths. Number one, Jesus expects true believers to endure. And number two, a lack of love has a negative impact on endurance. Notice that the text doesn't say that the love of many will grow cold and the one who endures to the end will be saved. It doesn't say that. It says it, that the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to, be, to the end will be saved. So there's a direct contrast at work there. Um, between a lack of love and endurance. And that is why, that is because love, by its very nature, endures all things, as we read in our text today. But again, we need to ask, why? Why does love endure when everything else fails? Well, there are probably a lot of directions that we could take that, but I would argue the number one reason love endures is that it's the only thing powerful enough to motivate Self-sacrifice. The reason that love endures, again, is that it is the only thing powerful enough 
to motivate self-sacrifice. In fact, that's the reason why the existence of love is such a compelling argument against macroevolutionism and secular humanist thinking, because self-sacrifice is not compatible with a godless existence where humans are just animals who operate by a survival of the fittest mentality. Doesn't fit. But that's really just more of a rabbit trail than anything else. So I get back to the point. Love endures because it motivates self-sacrifice. And with that, let me ask a question this morning. Assuming there's not a draft, would a person go to boot camp and risk their own lives fighting in a war if they did not love their country? Would a person do the work of teaching their children life lessons and using discipline when necessary if they did not love their children? Would the early Christians have endured torture and death if they didn't love Jesus? In all of those examples, all of us know today that the answer is a resounding no, and that's because love is the only thing that truly motivates self-sacrifice. And self-sacrifice is the test of endurance that every Christ follower is tasked with passing. If you're not following me, then let's remember the words of Jesus himself. He said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. To take up a cross is self-sacrifice. To do it daily, that is endurance. So that's the first reason why nothing outranks love, because love is enduring, and the followers of Jesus must endure. We must. The second reason from our text is that love is eternal. We know from verse 8 that love is eternal because that's the very first three words of the passage. It says love never ends. It never ends. But as for the rest of verses 9 through 12, well, that's a little more confusing. <laughs> Let's go ahead and read that part again, starting with verse 8. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease, and as for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. So unless you've studied this before, you're, you're probably wondering what in the world this passage is really talking about. Um, and, and the first thing we need to do is to figure out what verses 9 and 10 mean. That's the plan. If we can do that, then we can use that as a key to unlock the rest of the passage. So, what does Paul mean in verse 9 when he says that we know in part and we prophesy in part? And what is the perfect and what is the partial in verse 10? Well, to answer this, we need to think about what is yet to come. What still hasn't happened in God's unfolding story? What is the perfect that will come? Well, Jesus already came once, so this has to be about his second coming when all things will be made new. That's what Paul means in verse 10 with the words, when the perfect comes. Also, it might help to know that the Greek word used for perfect in this text is translated as the word complete in quite a few other places in Scripture. In fact, if you have the NIV, um, you do have that word. You have the word complete instead of the word perfect here, um, which pairs with that partial, partial and complete. Perfect, when Jesus comes back. 
But now that we know what the perfect is, let's talk about what the partial is. To put it in a sentence, since the perfect is the return of Christ, the partial is anything that will be rendered obsolete when Christ returns. Again, to put it in a sentence, since the perfect is the return of Christ, the partial is anything that will be rendered obsolete when Christ returns. That said, if we read through verses 8 through, nine, 8 through 10 again, with that understanding, we will come away with the meaning, which is this. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will be obsolete after the second coming of Jesus. Why? Well, to answer that, we need to remember the purpose of spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4.12 says that the purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the body of Christ. But the thing is, when Jesus comes back, no more building will be necessary. Think about it. The body will already be complete. The cornerstone will already be with us, and nothing will threaten to demolish us anymore. So prophecy, knowledge, and tongues will cease because they will no longer have a function. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 11 with the analogy about childhood. He's making a connection between spiritual gifts and childish things. And his main point is that both have a purpose for a time, and then they're no longer needed once they've fulfilled that purpose. Let me put it this way. If following Jesus is like riding a bike, then spiritual gifts are like training wheels. When Jesus comes back, there won't be any need for the training wheels anymore. But I do want to clarify something for those of you who are more literal today, in that when Paul says that, that prophecy and knowledge will cease, he is not saying that we will somehow stop proclaiming the truth about God or that we will literally like not know anything or have our minds wiped or something like that. Knowledge will cease, like we won't know anything. No, that's, that's definitely not what it means. We need to remember that this entire passage is in the context of Paul warning the Corinthians not to idolize and misunderstand the spiritual gifts. So he's not literally saying that all knowledge will cease, but that the spiritual gift of knowledge will cease, just in case anyone was confused. But moving on, now that we've covered why those spiritual gifts are partial, we need to realize that our text specifically says that love is not partial. In fact, at the beginning of verse 8, it says that love never ends. And if love never ends, then again, it is eternal. But once again, the question is, why? Why is love eternal when knowledge, tongues, and prophecy are not? Well, the cheap Sunday school answer is that God is love, but I want to go a little deeper than that this morning. The reason love is eternal is because its purpose will not be rendered obsolete upon the return of Christ. In fact, it will be just getting started. That's what Paul means in verse 12 when he says, For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And on that note, this morning, I brought a mirror with me so that we can really understand what Paul is saying here. And so as we get started with the day's demonstration, I want to go ahead and have David Spading come on up and uh, John as well. And uh, we're gonna, David, we're going to have you stand over there by the camera and towards the back of the room. Now, okay, we tried this out, and he's got to stand a little bit forward, but he's mostly all the way back there, okay? And John's going to hold up the mirror for us. And uh, I didn't realize this morning, I wish that I had gotten a bigger mirror. Um, but the point is how not well you can see him in the mirror. So you'll see it in a minute, but he's going to hold it up for us and maybe just move it around so everybody can see 
um, David in, in the mirror. Can, okay, tilt it down. Can anybody see him? Move it around. Okay, can some people see him? Tilt up. Up, 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 a little more. Can anybody see him? Okay, okay. Now, that, that just fits perfectly into what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> really does. <laughs> okay, now here are the rules. Here are the rules. Try to keep your eyes on the mirror and try not to look back and try not to look right at David. Now, imagine David is playing the part of Jesus today. It's not that hard to imagine, actually. But <laughs> Imagine the mirror represents a relationship with Jesus on this side of eternity. Now, some of you have the gift of knowledge because you can see David better, better than some of you. You can just, you're at the right angle. You, you know what's going on. You can see better. Others of you have the gift of prophecy because, you know, you're right next to David. If he's going to say something or move around, you're going to be the first to hear it. You're going to know it. You're going to let us know what David is saying. Now, it, I'll just also add, if there's sin in your life, you can take a bucket of paint, throw it up there on the mirror. And that's how well you're going to be able to see David. <laughs> but go ahead and come on back, uh, David, and come up to me and stand in front of me, face to face with the congregation. Maybe not right in front of me because you're tall. I mean, I'm on stage, but <laughs> all right, okay. Now, raise your hand if you feel like you can see David better now than you did in the mirror. Uh -huh. Keep your hand up if you feel like it would be a lot easier to get to know David here versus through the mirror. Okay, you can put your hands down. David, you can go ahead and sit down. John, you can go ahead and let that mirror down, Mr. Muscles. Yeah. I was like, I need somebody tall. Yeah. Folks, that is the difference between how we know Jesus now versus how well we will know him in the future. Right now, we're looking at him through a mirror and God has given us some gifts to be able to see him better and build up his body. But one day when Jesus comes back, we'll no longer need the gifts because there will no longer be a mirror. Church, we want to know Jesus fully. And when he comes, we're not going to know him in part anymore. We're going to know him fully as we are fully known. So that is why love is eternal. Because love is not about the tools we use to see Jesus in the mirror, but the desire we have to look at Jesus in the first place. To see him and to know him. But that's the second reason that nothing outranks love. The third and final reason from our text today that nothing outranks love is that love is essential. In verse 13, Paul writes, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So one interesting thing to note is that hope and faith are eternal, just like love. But the question is, why is love greater than even these qualities? And once again, the text itself answers that question. If you look back all the way up at verse 7, it says that love hopes all things and that it believes all things. But what does that really mean? Does that mean that love literally just hopes and believes everything under the sun? Well, obviously not, considering the rest of Scripture and what it has to say. But I think what it does mean is that love is the most essential reason 
to hope or have faith in the first place. Think of somebody you love. Somebody you love very much. And uh, just a pro tip for you husbands out there. This is the point when you give that wife some eye contact, put an arm around her. You get a, that's, that's where it's at. But seriously, think of somebody that you, you might even sacrifice your life for, okay? You love this person, okay? Um, let's imagine that, heaven forbid, something bad happens to them, and they start going down a bad path, and they start falling into sin, and picking up addictions, and they're just in, before you know it, you, you don't even know what to do. They're just in the hole, in the pit. You just ask, how much would you hope for them to get better? How much would you hope for their situation to change versus somebody you just met on the street going through the same exact thing? On that same note, how much would you pray? How much faith would you have for that person you love to get better? How much would you be crying out in desperation for them to, to be rescued from what they're going through as opposed to somebody just on the street that you barely know going through, again, the exact same things? That's what I mean when I say that love is the most essential reason to hope or have faith in the first place. That's what our text means when it says that love hopes all things and believes all things. Have you ever had a time in your life when, when you prayed your guts out basically every day for years, waiting on God to answer? Have you ever had hope when everybody else seemed to, to give up hope? If you have, then I guarantee it can be traced back to the fact that you love someone or something very passionately. Some of you are praying and hoping for somebody like that right now. And you believe because you must believe. You hope because you must hope. And that is because of love. So that is the third reason why nothing outranks love, because even when it comes to faith and hope, love is essential. It's like the gas in the tank. The car's not moving. You're not hoping. You're not having faith without love. So in summary, nothing outranks love because love is enduring. Love is eternal and love is essential, but there's still one very important question that I said we would answer at the end. What do we do with this? What do we do? Well, if nothing outranks love, then shouldn't we do what it takes to make our lives about love? If nothing is more essential, enduring, and eternal, then wouldn't it make sense for us to invest more in love than anything else? Because I don't know about you, but at the end of my life, I want to be able to know that I spent it loving God and loving people. I don't want to look back at my life and see the selfishness of my own achievements, because if that's all I have, then I've spent my life on something that's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. So if you're on the same page, let me give you two practical ways to make sure that your primary investment in this life is love. Number one, value knowing Jesus more than just knowing about him. Value Jesus knowing more than just knowing about him. Bible knowledge can be very important. It can be very useful. In fact, if we didn't have it, then at some point we wouldn't even know how to have a relationship with Jesus in the first place. But there comes a point in the life of every believer when knowledge starts to become useless unless it's applied. Here's my point. Jesus isn't going to care about how good you are at a game of Bible trivia when you're sitting on the beam of seat of judgment. 
but he is going to care about how well you know him. Jesus affirmed the truth with the words he spoke in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. And here's what he said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Notice that the reason Jesus is not going to let some people enter the kingdom of heaven is because they never knew him. Never knew him. So the question is, how do we know Jesus? Well, the first step is beginning a relationship with him in the first place. And the way that we do that is placing our faith in what he did on the cross and that he rose again and he really is who he says he is, that he's God that he took the penalty for what we did upon himself. The Bible says that if we choose to believe in that in a moment, that we will be saved if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he died for us on the cross. That's how you start that relationship. And no other way. You'll be an enemy of God until you make that decision. And then you become his child. <laughs> there is no casual acquaintance of God. But after you do that, the question then becomes, how do I know Jesus better? And here's the simple truth that many of you have heard for your entire lives. Pray and read your Bible. It really is that simple. But the problem is that even in those disciplines that are designed to bring us closer to Jesus, we have found ways to make them more about knowledge and routine than about relationship. So let me give you two tips on how to put your relationship with Jesus back into prayer and Bible reading. Starting with letter A, make prayer personal, not perfunctory. If something is perfunctory, it means that it is carried out with minimal effort, almost thoughtlessly, on a routine basis. We say a prayer in the morning for our quiet time. We say a prayer before our meals. Uh, if we're really good, we might say a prayer before we, we go to bed. And that's because many of us struggle not to make prayer a box to check off when it's supposed to be an ongoing conversation with God. The Bible tells us that we should pray without seeking, not because God wants us to be checking off boxes all day long, but because God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants you to bring your thoughts and your feelings to him. He wants you to talk to him as you walk down the street to get the mail. He wants you to talk to him when you're stressed or sad or happy he wants to know what's going on, even though he knows. <laughs> because he wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. So if you want to make love your primary investment in this life, then you'll want to make, personal, you'll, you'll want to make prayer personal, not perfunctory. Moving on to letter B, if you want to make love your primary investment in this life, then make Bible reading applicable, not academic. Understanding things like syntax, literary and historical context, languages, and authorship can all be very helpful in our study of the Word of God. But if that's all you do when you read your Bible, you're missing the point. Missing the point. There are probably people in Haiti right now who don't know what any of that stuff is, but they still know how to read their Bible, and they still know how to apply it. 
The Word of God says of itself that it is living and active, so we need to read it like it's living and active and not some history book to dissect in a meaningless minutia. When I read my Bible, with the exception of the narratives, I always read a short little bit at a time, a little, little chunk, and I chew on it over and over again with the question, how can I apply the truth I am learning today in my own life? What can I do with this? What can I do with this? And that's exactly what I would recommend to you if you want to value knowing Jesus more than knowing about Jesus. The second way to make love your primary investment in this life is to value people more than tasks. To value people more than tasks. This one can especially be challenging if you are task-oriented, like me, but it's, a well, it's well worth the effort. And the example of Jesus reveals why. Have you ever noticed that people were constantly interrupting Jesus while he was on his way to do something or go somewhere, and Jesus always stopped anyway to give one person his attention? And they didn't even have to be a person of status. In fact, usually they weren't. In Luke chapter 8, 40 through 49, Jesus was on his way to heal the sick daughter of a synagogue leader named Jairus. And in verse 45, he stopped to give somebody his time. Let's go ahead and read it. Again, that's Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 45. Luke writes, Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming in on you and pressing against you. Someone did touch me said Jesus. I know the power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. Here's what I want you to get from that story right now. Jesus' task was to help the daughter of Jairus. That's where he was headed. That's what he was doing. His task was to get to her house. That was the mission to accomplish. But Jesus valued people so much more than tasks that he was willing to stop what he was doing to encourage a woman who had already been healed when he knew full well that it would appear as if it costed him the very thing he set out to do in the first place. Now, Jesus also knew that he would raise her back to life, but the point is he was never in too much of a hurry to give someone his attention. And I think that's the way we should all strive to be. So, as I close for application today, I want to encourage you to make love your primary investment in life by placing more value in knowing Jesus than knowing about Jesus, and by placing more value in people than in tasks. Because the fact of the matter is, nothing outranks love. Because love is enduring, love is eternal, and love is essential. Now, I realize today that there may be some of you that have, again, never started that relationship with Jesus and the thing about love is, is we tend to look for it in all the wrong places. <laughs> and I just want to tell you this morning that you're not going to find love like you need it in that girlfriend or that boyfriend or that person you want to marry. That's good. But you're not going to find God's kind of love. You're not going to find the kind of love 
that you just can't live without. Because all the other kinds of love fail if we don't have God's kind of love. They fall short. People let you down. God doesn't. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for that one in this room, um, or maybe many, um, that, that hasn't started a relationship with you, that doesn't know that the source of true love is you. Lord, that they would take a step of faith to believe in you, to believe in you in this moment. Lord, as I said, to, to take that step forward in starting that relationship by believing in you and what you did, that you took our sin somehow upon yourself. That's why you died. That's why you died for us. And that you rose again, proving that you're God. Amazingly. You're the only one who can promise us eternal life, Lord Jesus. Only one. And your love is the only true love. Lord God, I pray for the rest of us in this room who know you, have made, maybe had a, long, a relationship with you for a long time, <laughs> that we would be able to apply what your word saying this week. Lord, that we would be able to realize that, that really there's nothing more important than biblical love. Love as the Bible defines it. Your word defines it. That we need to, to emphasize that, to prioritize that. Help us do that. Help us take those steps of application this week as we go forward. And in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.